0: I'm Bert Cohen and with your help we are keeping democracy alive.
1: Tech for Pulse. Stand clear. Push to shot. <laughs> of man. Well, there's an
0: election coming up. A big election. Well, the historic American election isn't until November 2020. The historic British general election is far sooner. December 12th, 2019. Ever since our successful war of independence, our two countries have remained Pretty much solid best buddies. We finally did save them from the Nazis, of course. There are many similarities of our two cultures and differences. Both of us have been rather imperial in foreign policy, uh, the Brits being much more open about it. But unlike the UK, America has never really had class consciousness, whereas the Brits have traditionally been acutely aware and experienced working class solidarity as a potent political force. The Labour Party has been their dependable voice, except for when both the American Democratic Party and they veered to the right. Then, with Tony Blair, us with Bill Clinton. Now, I have a vague sense that this move eventually cost the British working class much of its political power. The structure of their national elections is quite different from ours. As I understand it, and I'll find out more, the voter chooses a party labor or conservative, or some of the other smaller parties. But the world is watching as December 12th approaches. Will the, shall we say, colorful character of Boris Johnson and his hard Brexit continue, or can old-style leftist labor leader Jeremy Corbyn put a stop to the headlong rush to economic catastrophe posed by a hard Brexit? In the bigger picture of Europe drifting to the far right, What, if any, impact does the English election portend? With us to shed some light into the British messiness is Kenneth Surin, whose article, Labour and the UK General Election, appears in the magazine Counterpunch, which bills itself as fearless muckraking since 1993. It's good to have you back on the show, Kenneth.
2: Oh, glad to be back.
0: Kenneth Surin is professor of literature and professor of religion and critical theory at Duke University, which is in these currently United States, and has provided welcome insight on British politics for keeping democracy alive in the past. Well, again, thanks for being back with us. You start your article with a bang. Here's the quote. The media focus in the UK general election has tended, understandably, to be on Bojo Johnson, the latest prime prime unmover, in parentheses, un- of Eucanea's protracted and bizarre Brexit ordeal. There's a lot to discuss in that introductory sentence. In America, as you know, the media coverage of serious candidates is often overshadowed by the media's steady focus on entertainment. It's about keeping the corporate advertisers happy. Trump was very entertaining in 2016. That got him tons of free coverage. Is it similar with the British media?
2: Um, well, I think yes. Um, the bulk of the British media consists of right wing tabloids um, with a reading age, I think, uh, even below USA today. Um, yeah, that's a good tradition. it's a uh, tradition. That media, insofar as it deals with any information, uh, turns it into entertainment. So I think your description is absolutely right.
0: That's, is Boris Johnson as entertaining as uh, our Donald Trump, or maybe even more so? What are your thoughts on that?
2: Well, I find neither to be entertaining, uh, to be honest, sure. um, except in a macabre right. way. Um Johnson is much more slapstick, uh, and impressionistic than is Trump. Um, t- Trump's version of narcissism, I think, precludes, um, any real sense of self-irony, uh, et, cetera, et cetera. Um, Johnson is more likely to send himself up, uh, you know, people who send themselves up in serious positions are are, are really not funny. Um, yes. I, he, he thinks that's a good way to play to the crowd, and maybe some people are persuaded by that, but anybody who is serious about politics um, just regards it uh, as a kind of entertainment circus, which is what it is. There are no policy positions conveyed in any of his antics. Um, Photo ops are his modus operandi. So there's an endless parade of him uh, leading bulls by a a rope, Uh, the mandatory high-visibility jackets, hard hats, uh, protective goggles, whatever uniform of a factory that he happens to be visiting. Mm
3: -hmm.
2: Um, It's all just fluff. Um, He's pulled out of a debate with his rival uh, on Sunday. The organizers of the debate have promised to put an empty chair (laughs) uh, on the podium uh, to make it quite clear uh, that he ducked out of it. So he's not worth taking seriously except of course he Prime Minister. what he represents is something that we have to take seriously. Uh-huh.
0: Well, you mentioned something in in your introductory sentence uh the word Ucania, U-K-A-N-I-A. I've never seen that before. That wasn't a typo, right? What I mean, what is Eukania?
2: Um no. It's uh, a borrowing on my part from the great Scottish writer on nationalism, Tom Nairn, N-A-I-R-N, who riffed uh, on the term Cacania in the great novel by Robert Musil, The Man Without Qualities, which is about the disintegration of the Habsburg Empire uh, just before and just after the First World War. So... Nan converted the term Cacania, referring uh, fictionally to uh, the Austro-Hungarian Empire at that time, to the fictional Ukania, which represents the decaying uh, United Kingdom. (laughs) So, Ukania is the United Kingdom in decay. Uh-huh. Terminal or not, we do not know, but I suspect it's terminal.
0: <laughs> well, it it I I had a professor way back in college who referred to it as formerly Great Britain, it used to be. But not yet. <laughs> uh,
2: yes, that's a good paraphrase of UK. Uh
0: Interesting. Well, unlike the uh, United States, class sense of class uh, belonging has has. As I understand it, I may be wrong, but always been part of the British identity. My impression is that people feel a kinship, a sense of belonging and strength and unity in their respective classes. Is that still true 20 years into the 21st century?
2: I think the gist of your question is that it probably isn't true. And it is class solidarity uh, was predicated historically on the existence uh, of heavy industries. Um, coal mining, steel, shipbuilding, um, the automobile industry, uh, and a few others. And with the uh, decline of these industries as a result of policies initiated by Mrs. Thatcher, um, this is no longer the case uh, that you can have class solidarity predicated um, on the existence of unions uh, functioning in the heavy industries. So what has happened now is that we have vestiges of that class solidarity, um, but it is no longer focused uh, on a clear sense of class. Instead, it is focused, uh, and this is the insertion of populism, uh, into the notion of class, it is focused on the generation and maintenance of grievances. Um, hmm. In the sense that uh, rich people, or toffs, as they're called in the UK, or poshos, a version <laughs> of the term posh, uh, in the sense that there is a general working class derision towards toffs and poshos, etc., it exists in that in, uh, in that mode of grievance and resentment, rather than an active and productive working class solidarity, which existed in mining communities, in railway communities, uh, in uh, steel manufacturing towns, etc., etc., uh, until the nineteen seventies, when that started to dissolve.
0: Right now, I, I wonder. You know, there's the Labor Party, which is labor, or, you know, has been pretty much traditional, except for that blip with uh, Tony Blair. And there was the the Tories, which uh, my limited understanding of it is that, you know, they kind of represented the poshos, the the, uh, upper class. But since, as you say, the, you know, uh, the order of, of industry, heavy industry, ain't what it used to be, can the Labour Party candidate, uh, Jeremy Corbyn, count on Labour uh, to uh, put him over the top, do you think? Or, or is, it, is that, you know, uh, structure all kind of broken apart now?
2: I think as a, a vote-harvesting machine, um, <laughs> Labour is prospering. Ah, good. Um, because it has the largest uh, membership I think it's over half a million of any political party um, in Europe. But, of course, Labour itself is fractured ideologically. Um, But all the parties, all the main parties are fractured ideologically. So it really depends on, if you like, the location of the fractures uh, in an ideological spectrum. And, of course, the parties have these fractures located in different parts of the ideological spectrum. Um, so it is virtually impossible to predict how the electorate, uh, which, of course, is now much less homogeneous in terms of its ideological orientations than it used to be, how that electorate will uh, will respond to what is happening uh, on the various... Uh, if you like demarcations of the ideological spectrum undertaken by the main parties, it's um, their opinion polls. But the opinion polls in the last two or three elections have been pretty inaccurate,
3: uh-huh. and,
2: um, and and commentators all across the ideological uh, uh, spectrum are saying, "Look, uh, the terrain is too mucky." Uh, for us to rely on these opinion polls.
0: Well, that's, that's one thing we share on that side of the Atlantic and here. The, yes. <laughs> the polls are, are, are definitely not to be relied on because they turn on a dime. You just never know. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here on Keeping Democracy Alive. we're talking about the upcoming British election. It's a big one. Our guest today is uh, Professor Kenneth Surin who uh, hails from England, but uh, works at uh, and lives wherever Duke University is, somewhere down south, I think, right? I don't know. <laughs> but uh,
2: North Carolina.
0: North Carolina, yes, indeed. Thank you. Well, I mean, the, the old working class here, I mean, the, the, the Democratic Party, uh, like Labour, you know, turned toward uh, the right with the Clintons, And the uh, labor support for the Democratic Party really dropped off. And a lot of the people in what might otherwise normally be considered working class went for Trump this time around. So we have two candidates now, Boris Johnson, also known as Bojo, perhaps somewhat derisively, and uh, Jeremy Corbyn. So who are the constituencies? Can they be identified that support Boris Johnson versus uh, Jeremy Corbyn.
2: Well, Boris Johnson, uh, where does one start with this character? Um, He is an opportunist. He shares that in common with Trump. He is tremendously egotistical. That's another quality he shares with Trump. Um, He is really not a politician um, because his only interest uh, where politics is concerned uh, is the acquisition of power. So, for example, he's now coming across uh, as the hard, hard Brexit prime ministerial candidate. But when he was mayor of London three years ago, um, he was writing articles uh, advocating the remain in the EU position. Yeah. Um, but the Tory party swung uh, in a hard right direction um, strongly uh, uh, pro Brexit, and he realized that the only way that he could lead that party was to um, make his principles on the EU extremely flexible, and basically he flipped flopped. Yeah. So uh, a remainer became a hard Brexit politician. He has no real thought-out policies on the implementation of Brexit. He's simply um, gravitated from one gambit or antic to um, another. Um, the uh, the Eurocrats in Brussels, I think, take him even less seriously than his predecessor, Theresa May. Um, so, really... Uh, I can't. Uh, I can't see him uh, as any kind of direct opposite of Jeremy Corbyn, hmm. ideologically, um, because he has no he has no convictions. He a man. He is a man without convictions. Hmm. Now, if you want to have a follow up question, I can then go on to Corbyn.
0: Well, let's uh, talk about Corbyn. Yes.
2: Well, Corbyn is. Uh, and this is a term used derisively by the right-wing media, Uh, Corbyn is um, of the old left. Uh Um, So, if you identify positions with the old left, and these are positions that have been his for his entire political career, unlike Boris Johnson, Mm. Um, nationalization strongly pro-union, um, against the monarchy. Uh, he's in English terms, a Republican with a lowercase R, uh, the, uh, a believer in, uh, international socialist solidarity. So he's against any kind of xenophobia, a little England, Englanderism, as it's called, Mm. uh, and, um, of course, that, that translates into being anti-racist, um, anti-homophobia, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, I think you can fill in the blanks from then on.
0: Yes, indeed. There, there are certainly some sort of parallels, but uh, we'll get back to that. One thing I did want to focus on that people have been curious about here with regard to uh, Jeremy Corbyn, And that's that, you know, one of the great things that America has traditionally shared with the UK is a great antipathy toward anti-Semitism. The anti-Corbyn side has used this charge of anti-Semitism against him, and it does seem to have an effect. People, I don't think, want a prime minister who's anti-Semitic. What is the reality, and how much is this allegation hurting Corbyn? What is the reality here?
2: Um. I think the reality is that um, this is largely uh, manufactured, it has been weaponized, not so much by the opposition parties, meaning the Tory party, because of course they are more anti-Semitic. Surveys show that the Conservative party, for example, is more anti-Semitic than the Labour party, so they're not weaponizing it. Instead. It is the disaffected Blairite faction within Labour, uh, several of whom uh, are either Christian Zionists, such as the um, former deputy leader who's just resigned, Tom Watson, uh, or else Jewish Zionists. And uh, whether it's coincidental or not, uh, both these factions uh, are overwhelmingly Blairite, So what you have here is a fusion, or maybe a confusion, um, between uh, a political uh, aspiration, um, which is to restore the Blairite ascendancy in the Labour Party, uh, and also, uh, this is the Zionist part of it, a concern that if Blair became Prime Minister, uh, two things that are detrimental to Israel will uh, almost certainly become implemented as policy. First, uh, the Palestinians will be recognized as a state, and secondly, uh, the UK will cease all arms, uh, arms sales and military assistance uh, to Israel. So for this variety uh, of factors, um, we have a weaponizing of the charge of anti-Semitism against Corbyn. Now, let's not uh, uh, be stupid about this. Of course there are anti-Semites in the Labour Party. Uh, There's Anti-Semitism exists uh, um, right across the United Kingdom, uh, and the Labour Party is going to have um, anti-Semites within it. So, there is anti-Semitism at the party, but it is blown out of all proportion, and uh, you cannot accuse Corbyn himself of being, uh, of being uh, conscientiously and knowingly anti-Semitic. He has, if you like, and this is social media uh, at its riskiest, uh, put his name to certain platforms uh, which if you do deep research, you will find that this someone posted something about the uh, protocols of Zion uh, uh, on their website four or five years ago, uh, and Corbyn has now signed up uh, uh, for a recent petition uh, that's on the website. And, of course, if you dig, you can say the website is anti-Semitic, Um, Of course, the the protocols of Zion uh, uh, are an anti-Semitic document. So by implication, extended implication, etc., you can get to the point where you can say Jeremy Corbyn is uh, an anti-Semite. So most most of the charges are either absolutely fabricated or in some cases... uh, there is a, see, a lot of these websites are pro-Palestinian.
3: Sure.
2: And, um, there will be, I, for reasons that, uh, I can fathom, though I don't approve of them. Um, there will be anti-Semitic elements, uh, in the pro-Palestinian movement. Right. Um, it's, you can do your best to, uh, to eliminate them, but, uh, they're going to be there. And so Corbyn, by signing up for numerous petitions uh, that are pro-Palestinian, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, could be seen to keep company uh, or be placed under the same umbrella um, as these anti-Semitic elements. But that, as far as you can get in, um, in sustaining the charge of anti-Semitism against him.
0: And as you say, there are many people in the other party, in the Tory party, conservatives that are anti-Semitic as well. It's, you know, it doesn't uh, uh, relate necessarily to, to party uh, uh, affiliation. It's just, uh, it's unfortunate that it is there. And there is, and I've been trying to say this for a long time, a big difference between being critical of the current, many of the policies of the current state of Israel uh, and being Jewish. I am Jewish, I am not anti-Semitic, and I am critical of uh, many policies of the state of Israel. But let's leave that one behind. Um, And, you know, I know a little bit about the old British press. It it seems that the power of the press, at least here, is no longer what it, it, it was. You know, just the three networks did have a lot of power. Now we have social media, which is like a Wild West. It's just completely... Wide open with no controls. The British press has a long tradition of tabloidism, each paper having its dedicated supporters. Is that still the case? And if so, what is the landscape with regard to the British press, the power of the press, and their adherence?
2: I think tabloidism um, is a more pervasive feature of British culture than it is um, in this country. Um, The tabloids are overwhelmingly right wing Um, They reflect, if you like, the orientation um, of their owners, um, nearly all of whom are uh, tax exiles, to put it mildly. Um, And uh, one of the things that Corbyn has promised to do uh, is to close these loopholes in the tax system um, that allow people uh, who live abroad um, or domiciled abroad to own huge chunks of the British media. So, of course, they have an immediate vested interest in ensuring that Corbyn doesn't uh, uh, become prime minister. I've I can give you some details of uh, these owners, um, but I don't think your readers would be too interested in them. Of course, one of them is Rupert Murdoch. Oh, so yes. there, you can you can get the gist of what these tabloids are about.
0: Oh, I know, right wing. You know, easy to read and uh, just uh, it's yes. it's about selling papers and you know, sensationalism sells. Let's face it, and yes, well, you know, here, you know, we're still a. a over a year, well, not quite, less, slightly less than a year out from the American election. We have uh, on one side uh, Bernie Sanders, and people have suggested he's kind of like Jeremy Corbyn. How much like, I mean, we talked a little bit about how Trump is, is somewhat similar to, uh, to Boris Johnson, and I may add also Kaiser Wilhelm II. All of them are like bizarre <laughs> characters. Uh, but how much like Bernie is Jeremy Corbyn?
2: I think if you used uh venn Venn diagrams to depict them uh-huh. uh, the the circles would have a considerable overlap <laughs> um, but then if you like uh, uh using the Venn diagram image uh there are parts of their respective circles uh that do not overlap right. um, I think Jeremy Corbyn is studiedly. And publicly pro-Palestinian, in the way that Sanders is not. Okay, that's uh, that's one main difference. I think Corbyn is more anti-capitalistic than
0: um, Bernie
2: Sanders. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think I think Bernie Sanders wants to temper capitalism. Corbyn is not explicitly a revolutionary, but there are several aspects to his past uh, which indicate that there is a revolutionary dimension to his thinking. So I think those are uh, the two major differences.
0: Yeah, he's... You know, it's almost amusing here how people use the term left I mean, Eisenhower was a Republican, and he would be considered way left of center now. But uh, his domestic policies...
2: He uh, would be on the left in the Democratic Party. (laughs) Yes,
0: he would. I know, it's amazing. But it does seem in in Europe and uh, the UK, there is a real left. There's a genuine left, and uh, Jeremy Corbyn is certainly part of that. I don't think there'd be any disagreement about that. Now, of course, the, fi- the sun finally did set on the British Empire, but they're still a very powerful country militarily. Let's talk about some of the differences in, in terms of foreign policy between Corbyn and Johnson. Uh, and, and you already mentioned about uh, Corbyn being pro-Palestinian, uh, uh, favoring a Palestinian state. Uh, you write that Corbyn even had the gall to denounce the coup against Evo Morales down in bolivia and meet with that yacht hitchhiking uppity teenager greta Thunberg. how is that playing electorally is it is that what are your thoughts on that
2: in terms of the electoral terrain uh, as it currently exists i think brexit uh, obviously monopolizes the attention of people oh true uh, corbyn has promised uh to implement a Green New Deal. Uh-huh. Uh, so he's the, apart from the Green Party, which is minuscule, uh, he is the most uh, pro-environment uh, of all the parties. Uh, younger people, younger people, uh, obviously, uh, you know, if you like, the Greta Thunberg uh, generation, um Gravitate towards Corbyn, I think, because of this Green New Deal. Uh, older Brits, not so much. I mean, you know, they they grew up in the days when nearly every big town had smokestacks, et cetera, et cetera, um, and they uh, they regard. The, they tend to be more conservative. They regard environmental causes as hippiedom, etc., uh, etc., cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, a fad, uh, mm. etc., among younger people. So it's the younger people who gravitate towards Corbyn for his Green New Deal. Uh, and then what are the other constituencies? He is going to lose a solid... Chunk of traditional Labour voters Uh, to the Tories because of Brexit. Um, These are older, primarily white, less educated people. um, And just as in the United States, that echelon, uh, demographic echelon, gravitated towards the Tea Party and then, of course, later on, supported Trump, um, the equivalent demographic grouping uh, in the UK is going to abandon Labour.
0: Wow. Um,
2: and then, of course, uh, likely to throw a spanner in the works yep. uh, are the, uh, the non-English members of the United Kingdom, Scotland, uh, in Wales, and to some extent, Northern Ireland,
0: well, oh, that's right. they they participate in the uh, general election that's coming up uh, December twelfth.
2: Oh, they do. Oh, and the Conservative Party, you know this is we are talking about very fine margins now uh, because of the uh, the muddy electoral terrain. Uh, for instance, the Conservative Party has holds thirteen seats in Scotland. And they are almost because Boris Johnson has, uh, in his attempt to be humorous, has been denigrating about, uh, uh, spoke denigratingly about the Scottish people right. um, and has shown absolutely no interest in them as a political entity. Mm. Uh, there is a good chance that the Tories will be wiped out in Scotland. Mm. So if they lose, say, 10 seats, that 13 will go down to 3. Now, here's the complexity. Labour is also strong in Scotland, but the strongest party in Scotland is their Nationalist Party. Uh. So of the 10 seats that the Tories lose, will 7 go to the Scottish Nationalist Party and Uh say 3 to Labour? We don't know. Or will it be 5 and 5? We don't know. And then on the horizon is the interesting uh, prospect of a post-election alliance between the Scottish Nationalists and the Labour Party, which will almost certainly Ah. enable them to form uh, a government, but the the SNP is almost certain to demand as a condition of that alliance that they be given a referendum on independence, a second referendum, because there was one a few years ago
0: perhaps a binding referendum. I wonder if they would insist on that.
2: Yes, I think they will insist that it be binding.
0: For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Live. We're speaking with Professor Kenneth Surin about the upcoming British election. And it is, it is complicated. And before we get, you know, in, into the thick of the biggest issue by far, Brexit, people, I mean, here people vote You know, the top of the ticket. Do you like this person or that person? How does it work there? Do you just vote party? Is that it?
2: You vote party. Um, And then, of course, given that British politics has veered more and more in the direction of a presidential-style system, uh, the candidates matter a lot more than they did, say, 20 or 30 Uh years ago. Uh Um, But by and large, you vote for your party. And voting for your party means that your district candidate or constituency, as you call the district in the UK, your constituency candidates become important because the tradition. There are two ways to become a constituency candidate in uh, in the UK. One is to be parachuted into the district by the national party. Uh, This. Uh, all the parties do this. This is very unpopular, of course, with local activists who would like one of their number to represent the district. Um, or oh, the other route is the one that I've just mentioned, that uh, um, someone who has been involved in local town council politics, et cetera, et cetera, uh, risen through the local system, as it were, uh, maybe becomes the town mayor, and then is chosen to contest the general election. So these two systems of choosing candidates for the election vie with each other.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, mm. But of course, that the fact that they do vie with each other um, mm-hmm. puts them uh, uh, puts them at the forefront of attention at the local level. So local candidates matter, and in some districts. The stature of the local candidate can even eclipse the uh, uh, the leaders of the party of the main parties.
0: Interesting, interesting. It used to be uh, many years ago with the Democratic Party. I'm not familiar with the other party how they used to work, but it was somewhat similar. I think that delegates, you know, stood for election with the entire district uh now, you know, the delegates are chosen from just within the party regulars. But that's getting into those weeds. Now let's get into the other weeds, the Brexit thing. Uh, I can't help but th- think that, you know, most people uh, sense that the vote in 2016 was, people didn't think it was really going to happen, the vote for Brexit. They just, and there were, I think a lot of, uh, you know, anti-immigrant was, was behind it. How does yeah. uh, How does Brexit play into this now? What would be, what would be if Johnson wins? What happens, and if Corbyn wins, what happens with regard to Brexit?
2: Well, Corbyn, uh, who is um, much more interested in policy matters uh, than Johnson. Um, Corbyn has committed himself to a binding referendum. And the referendum will include remain as an option, meaning remaining in the EU. And he will give himself, I think, uh, a time frame uh, with the uh, acquiescence of the EU of three to six months to come up with a deal with the EU. So that deal along with the Remain option, uh, will be uh, the two uh, voting choices um, in that referendum, which, as I said earlier, will be binding. He himself has said that he will be neutral uh, in the campaign during this second referendum. Uh, Now, Boris Johnson, well, I mean, uh, look... Eighteen months ago, the deal that he is now touting as the deal of the century was the deal that he voted against. So what his predecessor then had a deal that was superior to the deal that Johnson is now touting as the deal of the century. And guess what? Bojo voted against Theresa May's deal so he's voted against his current deal he's voted against a better deal uh that was um enacted by his predecessor and the reason why uh he's done this has really nothing to do with brexit brexit is a vehicle for his personal ambition
3: no.
2: uh he wanted to undermine theresa may uh, he voted against everything uh that she sought to accomplish uh, so that she could be dumped and he could take her place as leader of the Conservative Party and, uh, by that fact, become Prime Minister. So, he has no no real positions on Brexit. Wow. Uh, he is he's basically um, flying by his pants, uh, and I can resort to all the clichés, sticking his finger up into the wind, etc., etc. That, is Brexitology for Boris Johnson?
0: Wow, <laughs> that—that's interesting. <laughs> the, the the picture I think a lot of us have had is that, yeah, he's uh, that Bojo is for a hard Brexit, and it's been unclear uh, where Corbyn stands. That's very interesting. So, he doesn't so much have a position as to, more, what will serve him politically. Fascinating.
2: Now, yes. Yeah. But Corbyn has subjugated his own personal preferences Ah. uh, for the sake of the party. Because if you look at Corbyn's history, uh, vis-à-vis the EU, he, like many of us on the left uh, in the Labour Party, and I'm a member, um, uh, is in favor of what uh, some call a lexit. Uh, That is uh, a departure from the EU on terms that are favorable to a socialist agenda. Um, but of course, Brexit has been completely saturated by the most atavistic uh, uh, forms of nostalgia for uh, empire,
3: uh-huh.
2: uh, z- uh, uh, anti immigrant xenophobia, um, white supremacist thinking. And of course, the racism that goes with all all this package. Um, so, given that, uh, uh, given that this is the um, uh, the political configuration uh, that underpins Brexit, Brexit as an option has been squeezed out. Hmm. I mean, there's just there's, there's just no room. You 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 either are for this. Uh, basically um, right-wing construction of Brexit or you're against it. Um, You can't say uh, and stand a chance of winning. Well, there are two exits. There is Brexit and then there's this teeny-weeny option that some of us support which is called Lexit. So, Corbyn, I think quite rightly, has decided that it would be futile to challenge the right-wing Brexit by hauling up the uh, uh, the flag of, of, of Lexit. Put Lexit to one side
3: mm-hmm. and
2: really fight uh, the right-wing no-deal Brexit and, if you'd like, wait for another day in history when maybe uh, the ground will be more propitious for a Lexit. So he's, he suppressed his basic political instincts with regard to Brexit. Bojo has, has none of those. Uh, his only instinct is self-promotion uh, and uh, the acquisition of power. Wow. That's the fundamental difference between them as I see it.
0: That, that's pretty frightening, I would think. Uh, and the, the, the prospect of, of a hard Brexit from everything I've read about it, is this is not going to help the British economy particularly at all, but that what united various different constituencies left and right was, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, sort of a a longing for the old British empire and to keep the uh, darker-skinned immigrants out of England. And I wonder how much evolved since then. Are people is there a, a a wider sense that a hard Brexit would be an economic catastrophe for the UK? Is, is that,
2: is it? Oh, I, go ahead. Uh, it will be an economic catastrophe for the UK. Um, it won't be an economic catastrophe for the Conservative Party, or at least its top echelons, because the Conservative Party has mutated It used to be, if you like, the party of business. But in this election, the Confederation of uh, British Industry, which is uh, basically the Association of Industry Bosses, has thrown its support behind Labour.
3: So what
2: has the Conservative Party mutated into? Well, it's it's basically now a post-industrial party. And what do I mean by that? Um, it's the party of hedge funds, financiers, um, and, sad to say, uh, Russian oligarchs and the financial interests that they represent. So, uh, given that this is a source of financial support now, uh, Brexit is going to have no impact on the top echelon of the Conservative Party, such as Boris Johnson and uh uh his his lieutenant um, but the rest of britain um, is is just going to be ground into the dust economically unfortunately and even uh the confederation of British industry is warning uh, uh that this is likely to be the case, and so is the Bank of england uh which is the uh the British equivalent of the fed uh, in this country mm-hmm so uh, uh, there is um, there is a consensus uh, formed from all uh, sides of political opinion that a no-deal Brexit is going to be a dis- econo- an economic disaster.
0: And how does that translate... And Politically, how how is that going to affect the election? Do you think is it I mean, obviously, every you know, it's the big story, Brexit. How do you think it will affect the election between Johnson and Corbyn?
2: Well, you know the uh, the British equivalent of the Tea Party, mm-hmm. and later on, uh, Trump supporters, because the Tea Party I think basically morphed into yes. uh, uh, Trump, Trump supporters. Problem. Yes. Uh, the British equivalent of that. Are going to say Brexit come what may, um, Brexit at all costs, etc., etc. And as I said, like the members of the Tea Party uh, in this country, uh, these are older, white, uh, mainly male, uh, less educated uh, um, people who used to have. Uh, what we would formally call working class jobs, which of course have dwindled dramatically, and they they believe, and I think there is uh, some truth to their belief, that they've been sold down the river uh, by the political system in all its forms, uh-huh. um, and uh, so th- their uh, their attitude coming into the election is, look. You know, we have a last throw of the dice. Uh, Everything that uh, we have seen happening to us has just failed us. Um, So let's give Brexit a try. Mm. But, uh, you know, that's uh, a gesture of desperation. Uh, Not just desperation, but anger, a sense of futility, etc. All these melding into one and... uh, uh, just as people say you cannot re- you you cannot reason with a Trump supporter, right.
3: uh,
2: facts don't matter, etc., right. etc. I think something of the same situation would exist if you got into a discussion with this kind of uh, hardline Brexiter in the UK. They are beyond facts. They are beyond facts, and they are beyond reason.
0: Well, you had a terrific choice of words in your article in Counterpunch uh, describing those pushing the hard Brexit. I wonder if you could uh, share some of those very descriptive words with our listeners.
2: (laughs) Well, um, you know, it is easy to make fun of them. Um, The equivalent term for redneck in... uh, in the UK, is gammon, G-A-M-M-O-N. And gammon is a thick slice of ham, uh, pink pink in color, of course, as ham is. (laughs) Um, And this is because the typical hardline Brexiter who qualifies for the description of being a gammon uh, is invariably pink in the face Uh from... Rage and anger and frustration, Um, and so the UK gammon, aka uh, the uh, rednecks, if they lived in this country, um, are are finding that this is their moment. Um, That they're actually being courted by. Uh, politicians, as opposed to being systemically um, uh, ignored right. and pushed to one side.
3: Uh-huh.
2: Um, now, the, the labor—the label that we use for this term, of course, in both countries is populism. Um, so, uh, Corbyn has elements of a populist agenda, but the populist uh, uh, um, formation in the UK is overwhelmingly right-wing, and so the gammon uh, find that they are now being courted. Um, yes, by politicians.
0: Oh, they must like
2: and, that. Uh, you know, I think I, I would like that. <laughs> if sure, I, if I was someone in that position.
0: Oh uh, boy, there there are some parallels there. Now, one thing I, I do wonder about, uh, you know, our version of Bojo is Donald Trump. And they both have an unquenchable narcissism, to use your words. Now, Trump has been implicated in various scandals of a personal, shall we say, sexual nature. Amazingly, it doesn't seem to do him any harm at all. Even with the the uh, uh, Christian evangelicals, you mention a uh, Jennifer Arcuri in the salacious context of the British press. Who is she, and is she a factor in the election? Do you think?
2: Well. I mean, she is just a symptom. I'll say something briefly about Jennifer Curie. She's uh, an American model-turned-entrepreneur uh, I- with features that resemble a Barbie doll. Um, and she lived in London for a while. Uh, the British use a ter- the term a squeeze for someone who is, if you like, a mistress. Yes. Um, uh, uh, someone's mistress- uh someone with whom uh uh you are having a relationship outside the context of marriage etc cetera, etc cetera. now I, I don't want uh to be uh moralistic about this um well, it doesn't I... matter to me how many, how many squeezes bojo has and he's had numerous uh squeezes and i think he's had several children by some of the, uh, uh by them in fact, he won't mention how many children he's had by them because he's a deadbeat dad. Yeah. Um, but anyway, what I what some of us object to in principle about Jennifer Curie uh, is that when Bojo was mayor of London, he used taxpayer money uh, to, uh, um, in the form of a grant, to a business which may ha- or may or may not have been um something that was properly established. That doubt whether she really had a properly established uh, business. Well, but he go on.
0: My my question is it doesn't seem to matter here in America, but what about over there which you know it, there's that tradition of a uh, uh, salacious uh, uh, tabloid press. Is it a factor in the election do you think? Do people care about that or they kind of admire it? I don't know. What, what's your sense?
2: Um, You know, uh, there has been, over the decades, a convergence between British and American culture. And I think the point of your question is, is there something of Trump in Bojo when it comes to uh, to matters sexual? And I think the answer is yes. Um,
0: But will it matter electorally on December 12th?
2: Well, I don't think it will. Uh just as it didn't with Trump. Uh, Bojo has found a way to create a Teflon effect (laughs) around him where his sexual liaisons are concerned in the way that Trump has. Um, And, well, what do you say? (laughs) Well, I... The whole point, the whole point is, and uh, this is, this is the... uh, the position that's being taken by some in the Labour Party. Let's not beat the drum on this, uh, right? Um, because because coming across as moralistic, true, uh, doesn't play with voters in these postmodern times. Uh, but rather concentrate on the angle of corruption. Uh, he took. Her, she was not qualified to serve on any London Council trade delegations, but he made her a member of three. Foreign trade delegations. Hmm. He channeled public money towards her. Concentrate on the corruption angle, and leave the moralism to one side.
0: Absolutely, I'm I'm sure that's got to be the best way to do it. Uh, and uh, any, <laughs> I know you don't have a crystal ball, but but what are your thoughts on how it's going to go on December twelfth? Will this? I mean, and as also, I did want to say that each party puts out what they call a manifesto with actual policy positions here. I don't think people look at that. Go ahead.
2: Will it matter? um, I think policy positions matter. Um, Labor Corbyn's uh, right-hand person, John McDonald, uh, who's a very impressive figure. Um, I've listened to him several times at the Labor Party conference. Um, He is a real policy wonk. He edits books on economic policy, uh, et cetera he has put forward a very detailed political agenda for a return to socialism. The, um, the Tory party manifesto is just a few dozen pages long. Um, with
0: Do people pay attention to that?
2: Um, no. <laughs> the, the, the Why am I not surprised? People are not, because it's, He's just going through the motions. He's right. not interested in policy at all. Right. Um, and really, uh, every policy position finds some way of getting back to making a reference to Brexit. Oh. So he. Um, this is a, a carriage that's great, that's pulled by one horse. Brexit. It's
0: all about Brexit.
2: And well, so what will happen? I don't have a crystal ball. Right. I suspect that. Whichever party gets in, it will get in as a minority government, huh. as a minority party, huh. having to form alliances. Now, right. uh, as a member of the Labour Party, my hope is that this will be the Labour Party
0: sure.
2: uh, with the backing of the Scottish nationalists. And the Welsh nationalists have said that they will. And the Green Party will, black, will back Labour. Huh. That with uh, that uh, coalescence of forces, uh, we will get a minority Labour government but I'm not ruling out, uh, at the very least, a minority conservative government.
0: Well, I can just say I sure hope that there is another referendum and that that, uh, the hard Brexit will not happen. I just, I hope that. Well, we've come to the end of our hour. Uh, Your articles are often in counterpunch, uh, which I read pretty regularly.
2: Counterpunch is my main outlet. Uh, I'm tremendously fortunate that the editor, Jeff Sinclair, provides me with space for my ravings.
0: (laughs) I appreciate it very much. Thank you so much and uh, we'll talk sometime in the future after the big election. Thank you.
2: Thank you very much. Uh, I've enjoyed being on your show. Thank you.
0: Billy Bragg here.
1: My neighbors don't drink at the local Or have kippers for breakfast like me The food that they eat smells disgusting They'd rather drink coffee than tea It's true that their kids are respectful They gave me their seat on the bus but it's just that there's so many of them that i feel what'll become of us i'm not racist all i want is to make things out they used to be but change is strange Nobody's listening to me.